when Paul wrote this, he was writing uh, to a group of people. And he was writing to a group of people who were doing some stuff wrong. And the implications of that, which are obvious, uh, but oftentimes un, uh, kind of taken into consideration, are that Paul was actually in the middle of a confrontational letter. And so we wanted to spend a Sunday talking about Paul's kind of style of confronting, as well as, and even more so, the way that the Galatians, or the people of Galatia, were responding to confrontation. Now, I say all that to say this. When we talk about confrontation, 99% of us in here um, hate it with every ounce of our body, or at least you just dislike it, right? And what that means is that you're normal, okay? Because there's 1% of us in here that we're like, oh yeah, we're talking about confrontation. I've been waiting for this Sunday. Honey, I'm glad we went to church, you know? Let me just tell you something about you that you might not know. You are a jerk, okay? Just so you know. With that, we're going to have prayer after the service. I would just recommend that you come down for prayer um, because, because none of us really like confrontation. It is an inevitability in life, and all of us are both um, guilty of sometimes avoiding it. We're guilty of when somebody comes to us um, handling it wrong, thinking of it wrong, thinking through it wrong. And what's interesting is as Paul writes a letter to confront some deeply held beliefs, which, to be honest, are the most difficult things to confront, Paul addresses the Galatians, and what we're going to find is they have a response that is indicative of how we ought to and sometimes ought not respond when people especially confront us. And here's what I mean by that. We've all been confronted with things, and for many of us, we respond very poorly to confrontation. We respond in ways that it's just very... um, perhaps disheartening, but more so makes it more difficult to confront people. And here's what I mean by that... Um, you perhaps have someone that came to you in the office and they, you know, confronted you with something. They said, you know, gosh, you know, I've seen your work performance and you're, you know, it just it has some things that are lacking. And, and immediately something inside of you wants to bow up and say, well, I've seen the way you staple paper, you know, and you're an idiot. I've, I've, I've seen, you know, you st- who, who does it diagonal, like straight up or, you know, perpendicular, but who does it diagonal? Or, or you have a friend, perhaps you're in, you're in uh, you know, the college frame of life and you've got some roommates or you're single, you've got some, you know, the single frame of life. You've got some roommates. And, and when I was in, in, in that stage of life, um, I had this internal rule that I didn't always tell my roommates that we don't have a separation of groceries. They're our groceries, okay? In other words, they are all my groceries. And another kind of unknown thing, is, and I don't believe that God intended for milk to be, drank, to be drunk in cups. You know, it's all from the jug. Now, just know that if you go to our house, okay, just as a, as a preference. But I've seen people who someone said, hey, you know, I, I, you, you drank my milk. And I've seen guys get into like, you know, altercation, just throat punching each other because of the fact that someone drunk somebody else's milk. But the reality is, is for all of us, confrontation happens in life, Right? We don't like to do it, and we don't like to receive it, but it is an inevitability in who we are and what we do. And what I want to talk about specifically is how Paul saw the church of Galatia responding when he was confronting them. Because the problem is, is we can talk about, and we're going to talk a little about how to confront folks, but the reality is, is for, for many of us, it's more difficult to be confronted with confrontation. It's more difficult to be confronted, especially when it comes to deeply held beliefs. We've all been there in life or had someone, you know, confront us about something. Perhaps it was a relationship. Perhaps it was a career path. Perhaps it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a pathway of strategic decision making that was leading us down the wrong path. And there's something inside of you and there's something inside of me that bows up when that happens. 
And Paul is writing, confronting a very, very, very deeply held, a very, very deeply ingrained set of ideas that was happening with the church in Galatia. Now, to get us there, I want to set a little bit of context to what was actually happening. Because when Paul wrote this, there was a problem, again, that he was addressing. And the problem that he was addressing was simple. It's that this church that he had been to, that he had preached the gospel to, was going back to some of its old ways. And this is what their old ways were. I am going to try to perform in such a way, I am going to try to religiously perform in such a way to appease a god or to appease a group of gods. In other words, I'm going to try to give so that God will be happy with me. I'm going to try to attend so that God will be happy with me. I'm going to try to behave so that God will be happy with me. And Paul, throughout the book of Galatians, basically puts the case over and over and over in different ways, in different lights, and in different shades to say, no, you know that's not true. You know that there's nothing that you can do to earn your way into God's good graces. Now, pause. This is a problem that all of us identify with, whether we've actually identified it or not. Because inside all of us, there is a pull, there is a natural pull towards religion of some type of moralism. Some type of behaviorism. That God is happy with me if I. God's happy with me if I go to church. God's happy with me if I pray. God's happy with me if I read my Bible. God's, God's happy with me if I you know, act like this, behave like this, go to those places, don't go to those places, hang out with these people, don't hang out with those people. Inside of all of us, right, there is a tendency to think that based on our moralism or our morality, our behavior, that we can prove our way into God's good graces. And Paul would say, let me just tell you, you can't, you can't, that God is too holy, God is too pure, and we are sinful, and God sent his son Jesus to die, to take our sin, to take our guilt, to take our shame, to take the judgment and the wrath of God that we should have faced, and when he took that on the cross, provided the only way to the Father, which is through faith. And that faith that we have will spur us to live like God like we never have before. But it's not about how you act and how you behave. So this is how Paul summarizes towards the end of his argument. He says, verse 8 of chapter 4. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, You were enslaved to those by that by nature are gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, distinction, are known by God. He says, okay, so you used to be enslaved to a bunch of gods, and here's how that enslavement worked. That enslavement worked, meant that, that enslavement basically worked that, you know, you would have a rain god, you would have a sun god, you would have a god of, of profitability, you would have a god of, you know, finally we, we, we scored some touchdowns in a football game, we scored in the third quarter again. You know, you would have your gods, and you would try to pray to those gods and work those gods, and you would find favor with those gods. But now, Paul would say, you've realized that you in that moment or in that time period or in that season, you knew about God, but now you know God. In other words, now it's personal with you. Now it's personal to you. You not only know about God, but you actually know God. It's personal. And here he said is the qualifier. And God knows you. Now, let me kind of talk about why that's important for a second. Many of us know God like we know celebrities. 
Many of us know God, like, I don't know your walk of life, but, you know, many of us know God like we know Kanye and Kim, you know? It's like I follow on Instagram. I don't follow on Instagram because I'm, I'm holy. Um, <laughs> but we know people, you know, you, you, whoever it is, your, your favorite athlete, I follow LeBron. I follow The Rock. Everybody follows The Rock on Instagram. If you don't, you should. Um, you know, we follow all kinds of people that, that we know and we feel like we know because we follow them so much. In fact, there was one time, um, this is a church nerd story, so let me just get this out there. Um, I was at a conference, and one of the people who I just love to listen to is one of the, the best communicators on God's green earth is, is a pastor. His name's Andy Stanley, okay? Now, that, that makes me feel nerdy. So has anybody ever heard of Andy Stanley? Let's just raise your hand real quick. Okay, you guys go to church. Thanks. Um, so I was at a conference, and Andy was there. And I've been listening to this guy for years, podcasts, you know, church stuff online, which many of you guys think, you do church on top of church, and you watch church online? Yep, I know, I get it, geek. But I love this guy. And so I went to a conference, and he was kind of standing around afterwards. And as he was standing around, they had just done some book signing. And I obviously already had his book, so I wasn't going to buy another book just so he could sign it. But I had a little uh, lanyard. Now, this is, this, is, this is super nerdy, but I went up to his assistant, and I'm like, hey, Total fanboy. Can he sign my lanyard? Right? So I'm thinking, this is Andy freaking Stanley. Like, I'm definitely getting this. And then I was like, hey, can he, can, can I get a picture with him? And his assistant goes, you know, I need you to know this. He doesn't like to take pictures. So what you need to do is I'll, you know, get your phone. And while he's signing your little thing, you know, you just smile and we'll take a picture. And I'm like, you know, most times it's like, man, I kind of want him to do it. I'm like, perfect. You know? So I walk up and they take a picture. And I'm just like, you know, I'm just cheesing because I'm fanboy over Andy Stanley now. Andy Stanley, let me just tell you, has no clue who Ben Kempfer is. But what Paul is saying is that many of us know God like that. But when you place your faith, your hope, and your trust, it becomes personal. God isn't this deity that you are appeasing. God is a personal relationship that you have, that you know God, and God knows you, right? I know LeBron James. LeBron James does not know me. I think he is the greatest basketball player of all time. Can I get an amen? Thank you for a couple of you guys out there who actually know what you're talking about. But LeBron doesn't know me. Then Paul qualifies and says, when you put your faith in God, it's not about appeasing God. It's that you know God. God knows you. And in fact, you're going to live for God because of the fact that God knows you. Because of the fact, not you're trying to please God, but God is already pleased with you. Now, we live in relationships like this. Where perhaps you had a parent who at some point in life or perhaps your entire life, or perhaps you had a boss, and it was just trying to please him, trying to please him, trying to please him. And it almost seemed like it was, it was this impossible task to please this person. But we also have relationships, the people who love us, who are pleased with us. And when it comes to those folks, we don't live in line with them because we have to. It's because we want to. Because they are pleased with us, and so we have a relationship with them, and we live in connection and in alignment with people who we have relationships with. So he says, so God knows you, you know God. It's a big deal. And here's the problem that you've gone into Galatians Church. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak, worthless, elementary principles of the world whose slaves you were once more at one point to? 
In other words, how can you walk back into that? You came out of this sense of paganism where you thought that God was someone to be pleased, that God was someone to be appeasing, and you walked into this relationship, and now you're walking back into this enslavement. He says, you observe days, months, seasons, and years, and I am afraid that I, have, have, that I may have labored for you in vain. Now Paul's saying this. He's saying, come on. You're walking back into this. You're walking back into this ideological, theological view that you can please God, but the confines of the gospel are that is justification through faith. That we look at God and we live for God because we have already been justified, not just simply forgiven, we are forgiven, but that God in a judicial sense looks at us because of our faith, covers us in Christ, and God looks at us not simply as forgiven, but as not guilty. That sinful me with my extraordinary mountain of sin that I have accumulated in my life can look to the perfection of the holiness of Almighty God and Him say, not guilty. That I now have a relationship with that God. Here's what's interesting of what Paul's saying. When we try to appease God through moralism, it is the equivalent of treating God in paganism. When we try to appease God in moralism, it's the same thing that you're trying to, you know, prove to gods that aren't even gods. You're trying to prove to a rain god or a clown god or, you know, what a clown god. I meant to say cloud god. But, you know, whatever god that it is that you're trying to appease. You know, you're trying to live for him in such a way. You're trying to appease him in such a way that he will be, find favor with you and put you in favorable circumstances. Paul says, you are already in a favorable circumstance. Why would you go, go back to trying to have to prove that to him? Now, we're going to get to the Galatians reaction which is how they responded to this confrontation. Again, deeply held belief. Difficult thing to wrestle with. And so this is what Paul says. Let me remind you of the relationship that we have together and how this whole thing started out. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You, didn't, you did me no wrong. That's a, we could spend a whole Sunday on that verse, by the way. Verse 13. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So what then has become of this blessedness? Paul said, let me just remind you, Galatians, people of Galatia. When I first came to you, you received me. When I first came to you, in fact, there was something wrong with me that you shouldn't have. I was a burden to you when I first came. And I preached the gospel. I told you about justification through faith. I told you about grace by faith. I told you about forgiveness. I told you about freedom by faith. And you embraced me. And you loved me. When I should have been an ailment, a burden to you, because I was going through something physically. People love to kind of geek out about what it was that was physically wrong with Paul or what kind of ailment he was going through. We got no clue. But we know when they heard the gospel, when they heard Paul, they just brought him in and loved him. So Paul says, what happened to that? Because that's not how you're treating me now. You, what happened when he says, what happened to that blessedness? It means, what happened to the blessing of the way that you were trying to, that you were treating me before? 
Because the Galatians responded in the opposite of how they had. He goes on and kind of you know, drills this a little bit deeper. He says, towards the end of verse 15, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. Which is just a little bit odd if we're being honest. You know, it's like Paul, you could have said that like, they really cared a lot. But Paul's like, man, if you would have had some spoons, you would have plucked them suckers out. So if you're in here, you're like a middle school boy, you're like, yes, finally something I can, you know, identify with. Not that you've ever done that, but you're like thinking, is that possible? So he's saying, you know, man, you would have given anything for me. You would have, you would have, you would have, pl- it seems like you would have plucked your eyes out if it would have helped me. You would have done so much as this happens. And now something has come and it's taken you away. It's taken you for a right turn. You were on the right path path now you're not on the right path and now that I am telling you the truth about the path that you're on you for some reason don't like it now pause this is where we enter the story for a lot of us I'm going to ask this question how do you respond when someone in love has come to you and confronted you with the truth how do you respond when your boss how do you respond when your coworker? How do you respond when your friend, when your family member, when your spouse comes to you and in love says, "Hey, I love you, but we need to talk." The Galatians' reaction, to be frank, was like most of our reactions, which is they didn't like it because it didn't make them feel good. It wasn't about truth or not truth. It was about how does what you're saying make me feel. And we live in, live in a culture that is satiated with the idea of not how something is true or untrue, but how that idea makes me feel. So this is what he says to him. You would have pulled your eyes out if you could. And have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth. Have I to become your enemy by telling the truth? Because I'm telling you the truth, and I'm not telling the truth because I'm so much better, or so much wiser, so much smarter. In fact, that was the opposite of the message of Paul. His message was, none of us are good enough, none of us are smart enough, none of us are wise enough. I'm not saying this from a sense of moral superiority. I'm saying this because I care in what is happening in eternity matters. And so I'm telling you the truth. And in telling you the truth, all of a sudden, it's like I'm your enemy. Now, this is something we can all identify with. Because in our lives, there's people that tell us the truth, and we avoid those people when we don't want to hear the truth, right? If this was a church that had a little more charismatic feel to it, we would have got some amens or some ums in that one, all right? Just saying. When we know that we're wrong, or maybe, we, maybe, maybe we're just unsure, maybe we're just going down our path, but someone confronts us with truth, most often our response is not to stop and say, is this true? It's to dwell on how what you said makes me feel. And the problem is, the problem is, as long as we do that, we will never get better. We will never get more holy. We will never realize the things that perhaps we are unaware of. Let me just say this. What I've seen just in my experience and just you know, dealing with some folks, dealing with some problems and having some problems of my own. Let me, let me just tell you what I see that this normally happens. Someone confronts you. You have that one friend that actually loves you enough to say something to you. Everybody else sees it, by the way, but you, that's just the one friend that actually cares about your relationship, that 
says something and they're willing to potentially risk the relationship because they actually love you. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other. Actually, it is this sermon. Um, but they say something to you, and then you run and find validation. I run and find validation in my you know, slew of friends who don't love me enough because their love for me is a selfish love. And so I just want to find validation in the, in, the, in the congregation of people who have my back, regardless if I'm right or wrong, because the truth is they love me selfishly. This is what happened with them. Paul says, let me, let me tell you, these, these Judaizers, this other group that was coming in and derailing them, saying, hey, it's Jesus plus morality, Jesus plus morality, Jesus plus morality, wrong path, wrong path, wrong path, wrong path. Paul says, let me tell you their motivation. The very next verse. He says, they, the Judaizers, Make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you may make much of them. Now, tell me the Bible isn't relevant. When you have friends, when I have friends, when you have families, when I, when I have families that tell us the truth, we run to the other people that, that validate and substantiate the way that we feel because, again, we want to know what, what we feel, not what's true. And Paul says, man, all those Judaizers that you're going, that you're finding that validation in, they're just validating you so that you can validate them, right? The reason we don't confront people is because we love people selfishly because I love you, but I love you as long as we're cool with each other. And so that if, if there's something that would make us not cool with each other, I'm not going to talk to you about it because I'm afraid that if I talk to you about it, you might get angry at me. Whoa, you know, that's crazy. But if I talk to you and you get angry about, at me, then you're going to not feel good about me. And so I'm not going to talk to you because how you might treat me or think about me. In other words, I care about me more than I care about you. Let me just say, we all do this. There's not condemnation in this. It's a problem. But we all have this tendency. And Paul looks at him and says, come on. And when you're confronting somebody, you do what Paul did. Which he cared. He loved he was in anguish because he saw the direction and had to say something. In love, went to him and says, please, please, please listen, because this matters. Many of us, we can't control how people respond, but we can control how we respond. So let me ask you this. How do you respond when someone confronts you? Someone who has the authority or more so, Someone who doesn't have the authority to confront you comes to you and says, I got a problem with you. Because isn't this true? In fact, the older you are, probably the more that you know this is true. That the season of your life that you have the most scars and regrets from, someone warned you about before it happened. Someone told you about. Before it happened, someone there was there was hundreds of people that knew, dozens of people that knew, a handful of people that knew, and one person had the guts to love you enough to have a conversation. And if you could go back and do it again, you would have listened. Paul says, "Man, I just I care so much. I can't not say this." He said, they made much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. In other words, I'm not trying to just, like, just battle you down, but I'm trying to actually lift you up for a good purpose. And not only when I'm with you, my little children, 
for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth. And so Paul says, man, I, I care. It's like I'm in this anguish, like I'm, like I'm in, in the middle of childbirth, to which all the women would say, you have never had a child, Paul. You do not want to know it feels like that's insensitive. Anyways, he says, I wish I could be present with you now because I changed my tone for I am perplexed about you. He said, man, I care. Let me tell you, you have friends that care. You have family members that care. You have coworkers that care. You have bosses that care. You have employees that care. You have classmates that care enough to say something to help you to learn and to grow and to get better and to become more like Jesus. You have accountability partners. You have people that you live in community with in community groups that care enough about you to tell you the truth. The question is, Do you care more about the truth or do you care more about how you feel and being right? Now, guys, let me just. We don't really care that much about how we feel sometimes. We just want to feel like we're right. And the fact that you saw something wrong with me means that there's a confrontation. Someone's right and someone's wrong and I don't like to be wrong. We all face this. Happens. Part of life. In fact, kind of to, to, to make this personal to me, not too long ago, I, I with uh, some of you guys know, you know, church is a big part of my life. And then another um, kind of like side project for 40 hours a week is a place called Registers Meat Company, Registers Sausage. And um, it's our family's meat company. And so I'm kind of on the top of the org chart. And um, so any confrontations I have are usually with other people. And I had someone that works for me, it's an employee of mine, that came to me and they said, you know, Ben, I got a, I got a problem and there's some things I could tell there's some frustration that kind of been building up and building up and building up. And I thought, well, that's because of course you're frustrated. You're wrong, you know. They came to me and said, Ben, I got a problem. And the problem is you. To which I said, well, you know, especially if you've ever been in this, con- this conversation where you're the manager and you've got somebody coming to you that's confronting you about something, and you just want to say, well, I sign your paycheck, you know? That's good that you've got a problem with me, but there's something inside of all of us that wants to bow up and say, I hear you, but I'm in charge. But to have the patience to step back and say, okay, let me hear it. Let me hear it. Let me hear what you have to say. Let me hear your problems. Let me hear what I'm doing wrong. Let me have the patience to actually sit under the thought process, to not say, am I comfortable with what you're saying? Do I agree with what you're saying? But is what you're saying true? And here is what's at stake. For many of us, for many of us, We think a season of growth only happens when we have extraordinary discipline in our personal spiritual life. We think the only way we grow is through seasons of, man, I spent so much time in the Word, I spent so much time in prayer, and those are so extraordinarily important. But let me tell you, the biggest catalyst for growth may be a confrontational conversation that someone has with you that spurs your leadership, that spurs your what the way that you husband, the way that you wife, the way that you parent your children, the way that you act in the workplace, the way that you perhaps go to school, perhaps it changes the trajectory of your career path because you listened for the first time. Perhaps for the first time ever. Maybe you've had people that have wanted to say stuff to you and say stuff to you and say stuff to you and say stuff to you. Here, if you don't want to listen, if the, if the first thing that spurs in your mind is you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong. Here's what I want to challenge you to say, because this is essentially what you're saying. I want you to just, in that conversation, own it. Say, I hear you, 
But I care more about being right than what I care about being true. Just say that. If that's what you feel, just own it. I care more about being right than I care about what's true. Now, come on. How much better parents would we be? How much better husbands, wives, managers, employee, students, kids would we be if we just stopped and listened? You know what my favorite conversations are? The conversation where someone has the humility to have received some extraordinary criticism and most of it's not fair and most of it's not true, but they step back and they say, but you know what? They had a point. And I think that I do do that poorly. When someone says that, when I'm sitting there thinking, man, I wouldn't have responded like that. I wouldn't have said that. I would have just told them that this and this, and you don't really understand the facts. You don't really understand what's going on. When I'm able to step back, or when I see people that step back and say, you know what? 99% of what you said is false, but there is something that's true in that. And I'm going to use it to learn and to grow. That might be the greatest catalyst for growth and spiritual growth that you go through in the entire next year. Because someone loves you enough to say something to you. Are you listening? How much more glorifying would our lives be to God if we stopped and listened? How much more glorifying to God would people see Jesus through us? If we stop and listen, in fact, for some of us, you know, you, you, you've been so not listening for so long that no one's talking to you anymore. This is what I'm going to challenge you to do. If no one's confronted you in a while, this might sound like really odd stuff, especially because, you know, in the spiritual world, we think, all right, everything has to be, you know, uh, abstract and, and practical. So let me just give you some really, really practical church stuff, okay? If no one's confronted you in a while, I want you to talk to this week one or two people who know you really well and you know will tell the truth. And I want you to look them dead in the eye and say, how can I get better? What am I doing wrong? How can I get better? I know I have this tendency. What do you think? How am I doing at this? Husbands, sit down with your wives. Say, hon, what can I do better? Let me just tell you. Go ahead and bring a pen and paper and a voice recorder because she's got like a document that's already written up. And she's like, actually, I got cliff notes. I'll just email them to you. We're going to have a conversation. Can you block off next Friday, right? We just take the day off because I got some things that I've been willing to say for a while. And you're going to say, really? Really? I disagree. Oh, I, I disagree, but there might be truth. And let me just tell you, let me just tell you. People know, people see. We are unaware of what we're unaware of oftentimes. And the only way that you'll know is if you'll listen. How much better? How much better? How much better? Would you be at what God has called you to do if you stopped and listened or if nobody is talking to you, asked for feedback? Because Paul is talking to the Galatians saying, I care about you enough to have this conversation with you. And the stakes are extraordinary. This might change your marriage. This might change your career. This might change your educational path for you to stop and listen to perhaps what a wise prophet is saying in your life. And as practical as, this might, or as practical as this might seem in a world of church where often things are impractical, let me just ask you this. If we stopped and listened, we would live in holiness. Because people are talking. We're just prideful and too unrepentant. So Paul talks to the Galatians and says, please, 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 Don't make me your enemy because I told you the truth. Don't make me your enemy because I told you the truth. 
in a world where we just want to feel right, in a world where we just want people to validate how we feel, we have got to start asking, is it true? Now, let me finish by saying this. When I say that, this is not some subliminal message to people who aren't Christians to believe like us. This is a message to Christians specifically. Oftentimes, we take this and we say, yeah, you know what? This is what we believe. This is what we think. This is what we moral. You should listen. You should listen. You should listen. Let me me tell you the mistake the church makes. The church holds people who have no similar ideological and theological views to the same ideas and morals that we have, and that is wrong. Paul would say, why in the world would you do that? In fact, what we ought to do is the opposite. Because inside the church, we give grace, and we just love, and we just give grace, and we just love, and don't confront, don't confront, don't confront. But outside, how could you, how could you think, how could you believe? We ought to be confronting each other in love in the church. The character would grow. The ways that this would spur, be a catalyst for growth, would be extraordinary. And we would love everyone outside of the church so much better. Because there is not a performance-based expectation. I heard a guy say it this way, and I promise I'm going to end with this. But this is just the nerdiest thing I can end on. So here we go. You ready? He said this. We ought to judge the believing, not the heathen. (laughs) We ought to judge the believing, not the heathen. We ought to have the audacity to love one another, to have difficult conversations, and we ought to have the patience enough to listen. We ought to yearn for truth enough to hear that we, with our lives, can glorify God with our lives. But how do you respond when confrontation comes your way? Do you pause long enough to say, but is it true? Don't like it? Don't want to hear it? Don't agree with it, but is it true? But is any of it true? My hope and my prayer is that we will, going forward, be people who embrace truth regardless of how it makes us feel, and in that we will live lives that glorify God. Let's pray together.